um, give Mark a hand as he comes and uh, share this morning. Oh, good guys. All right, nice guy. So yours, buddy. The hard thing is, um, if I can be, and I'm going to be really honest with you all, is that you're probably looking at me and, you know, when you look at someone who's really good looking, you just think, <laughs> well, you're looking at a really good looking person, you think, flip, they haven't been through anything. And, you know, because <clears throat> I know my looks are often what draws people. <laughs> do you know? Do you know that um, I lived for a while in Thailand before I was married, and um, I ran out of money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no. And I, they were looking for expats for um, modelling, you know, for billboards and all that, and I went along because the money was good. And this is no lie. This is the, probably the first time I got an inkling that perhaps I wasn't as good looking as Mamura was telling me. <laughs> was, they were sitting in this room and the guy came in and goes, uh, and he pointed to me in front of them all and said, sorry, too ugly. <laughs> and, uh, and I only had a little bit of money left and I went across the road to McDonald's and just gorged myself. It was, it was a bit of therapy. And um, I once asked my wife, I said, am I good looking? And she said, she said, you've got a friendly face. You've got a friendly face. Which I take as... Um, as I take that effect, is that I, probably, I need to get with the program. So, um, <clears throat> if I can, I'm, I'm going to talk today uh, a narrative, and um, when I became a Christian, I came back from Thailand, a Christian, and. Um, I got searched at the airport coming back for drugs because I probably looked, I didn't look probably like, I looked like I was go, probably carrying something, <laughs> not just diseases. I was carrying some other stuff as well. And so the guy that searched me found a Bible in my thing. He said, you're a Christian. I said, yeah, and he invited me to his church. The trouble with that was I was so passionately into Jesus so hungry. I was so hungry that in a home group that they ran, I said, can I be baptised here and now? And we all went into the bathroom and I got into the bath and I took off my clothes and the guy goes, stop there, you don't, you can stay in the underpants. And I thought, oh, that's good. Because I wasn't too sure how it worked. I didn't know how Christianity worked. And um, I thought you've got to get humble before everyone. But apparently you only have to get humble before the Lord. So that was a that was a lifesaver because it was, it was winter and there was no heating in the house. And um, so, um, but this church was, it was hard and fast on rules and regulations. And you had to do certain things that I just didn't um, deal with. And then I went to Paul's church. And... The problem with going with the problem with going to Paul's church was the fact that Trudy and I have been a little bit lost ever since in terms of church because we haven't found a place that's home. We go to a, a, a brilliant church, really brilliant, brilliant, absolutely top notch, and there's no buts. But <laughs> this was amazing. The worship was so, it was almost like unplugged, plugged. You know what I mean? That we're used to this, with the lights going, and then, and this was just so, you know, like, 
it was just beautiful, absolutely beautiful worship. Yeah. So, um, when I went to um, Paul's church, Paul and Ruth, is I could just be me. Now, I was littered with problems. So I got saved, miraculously saved, beautifully saved, the best day of my whole life. May the 26th, 1988, the best day. It started off the worst day and became the best day. Like, there was no other day like it. It wasn't in a church that I got saved. Um, it was in a refugee camp. And when I entered Paul's church, you could actually say things as they were. Do you know what I get really tired of saying? Is when people say, how are you? I've experimented with telling the truth. <laughs> it doesn't work. Like, how are you? I went, we went to this home group once, Rudy and I. And they said, tell us about your problems. Let's just go around and tell us about your problems. And I thought they meant to tell about our problems. So I told my problems. You know, like, that um, I struggled with these particular things. And the faces were like this. <laughs> because then, after I shared, it got to other people, and one person, their major problem was they were leading too many people to the Lord, and it was just becoming too hard, and another person was too successful at work, and that was a problem. Mine was that I was failing. And I didn't feel like I could share who I was. Who, who I was. I remember Corey Ten Boom. Um, because I've always liked this thing that the fabric of life is you can be exactly who you are. That Jesus can probably shine better than our realness rather than this persona of how we want to be. When I wasn't a Christian, I remember going to church and thinking, there's a whole lot of people here sweeping their problems under the carpet. But there was one person that stood out, that she shone Jesus, and she was just real, passionate love with Jesus and living life. Oh. Corey Ten Boom, when they were introducing her, she was talking to this immense crowd, and they did this big speech about Corey Ten Boom. Who was this person that survived concentration camp and came out and had led people to the Lord? She'd wrote, written these books, Tramp for the Lord, just brilliant books. And they did this big accolade to her and she got up the front and she said this. She said, I have no idea who that person is because I want to tell you about who Corey Ten Boom is. Corey Ten Boom last night was sitting here and I was just hoping that no one would give their hearts to the Lord at this conference because I just wanted to get home. Corey Ten Boom is selfish, lazy, but tonight I want to talk about Jesus. And I remember hearing this thing for the first time that you could best be who you are. Finding a church where you can be who you are is something the world cries out for. That you can come in and people can say, how are you? And you can say, oh, fantastic. Or you can say, not good. And not good mustn't mean to say you're failing. It just means it's not good today. And um, in the environment that Paul created in his church is that it was fine to not be fine. In fact, all the memories we have of a place like that was it's a safe place to be who you are. And you would imagine that's the common fabric in all churches, but it's just not. When people ask me now in the church I'm in, how are you? I go, fine. <coughs> Which means there's a disconnection in life because I so love saying how I really am, whether it's good or not good. And it's probably got me into trouble for saying things because... My wife tells me I've got to rein it in a little bit and <laughs> put a bit of perfume on the pig. <laughs> so, 
So I'm here to talk about, and not for too long, I'm here to talk about a couple of things. In Malaysia, they've got this beautiful twin towers, Patronus. And the, both of them were built in a competition. Uh, the tallest twin towers in, in the world, I think. Are they in the world? Let's go, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're a church, we can exaggerate. Um, so these twin towers, and one was, um, I think, built by China, and the other was South Korea. And um, I think they were going to invite North Korea into that project, but wouldn't have gone well. And so there was a race to get to the top, and halfway up, about halfway, there's a sky bridge going across. So my first part of my message is this. It's about Frankie, our daughter, and anxiety that she's struggled with and her journey. But I'm going to lay over halfway through and talk about my journey because there's elements that are similar. And my daughter has yet to fully embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And... It's important to understand that because I want to, everything I say will be totally real. And I want to be totally real about Frankie and her journey and totally real about a parallel with depression, which is my friend. I don't suffer anxiety. I've got a friendship with um, depression. And my daughter's got one with anxiety. And whenever you are developing a message, you're thinking, well, what's the purpose of what I'm talking about? And the purpose is, is what my wife preached to me this morning, is the hope. She was saying, don't say this, don't say this, say this. <laughs> and right now she's thinking, flat. Because <laughs> sometimes I say things. That's why I never get invited back. So I say things and Reddy goes, ooh. It's almost like I, I don't check texts when I send them. And I sent Frankie a message. She was 16 years old and she was down the beach with her mates. And I said, I'll pick you up at 2 o'clock. And I didn't check the message. And she sent one back going, you're disgusting. And I looked at the message and it said... I will lick you up at 2 o'clock. <laughs> Out of my mouth, the heart doesn't speak. So my daughter, um, our daughter Frankie was born to us and um, she, right from the early stages, she had this dichotomy going on of this beautiful nature but also this very brokenness in her. And I'm going to start with near the end and then go back, is that I was Deputy Principal at Buckland Speech Intermediate. And in our school, it's quite an affluent school. And hard-working students and parents and everything like this. And I ran a workshop for parents while the kids were at the disco and suffering at the disco because that's what they do they just suffer because they can't dance to save themselves and it's just a, it's like why do they do it I'll just go and eat the food I tell you what it's just a shocker and so I ran this workshop for parents where they had students um, struggling with anxiety and when I talk about anxiety I talk about an anxiety that's a disorder where it is the controller where it um, when it manifests uh, a child can't live the normal life that they live. That's the element that's similar to depression. You can't function normally. It's like every thought is invaded by the thought of worry that's um, an endless pit. I'm not speaking as an expert because I can't, because I don't have any training. I'm speaking through the lens of what I've seen with my daughter and the parallels with my journey with depression. And um, so... We had students in our school that you would not ever be able to tell that they struggle with anxiety. We had a girl in room five and she had panic attacks in class. Like panic attacks. Where she thought she was going to die. Doing maths. And having to sit there doing maths 
when you don't know if you're going to live through the lesson. There are incredibly courageous people that are battling things that we have no idea. And anyway, um, I had all these parents come along, huge number of parents that had students at our school that were struggling with depression. And we had two experts up the front that were talking about the clinical aspect of anxiety. And I was sitting down the back with Frankie, and Frankie at this time was about 21 years old. Frankie, who I, if I can be completely honest, I did not at times think she would make it to 21. So acute was the pocket of anxiety. It was a chronic episode because it's long standing with her. But there was pockets of acute anxiety. What I call acute, meaning it was very serious. And I was sitting down the back with Frankie. And the two people at the front were giving this talk. And it was a, a good clinical conversation. It was very tidy about anxiety. Very tidy. And people were sitting there, and they were all polite, sitting there. And at the end, I said, Frankie, do you want to talk? And she thought about it, and she goes, okay. So she, um, is this going to work if I, there she's up there. And um, do you know that I go to cafes, and my wife goes with me, and people go, is this your daughter? About my, about my wife. What mongrels. Like, you, they're not being polite, they're just being honest. We don't like that sort of honesty. And um, so she gets up the front, and I'm feeling quite relaxed about it. And she goes, like this, and I remember this, she just goes, listen. And she talked with authority and she talked about the chaos of anxiety she talked about the brutal chaoticness when her father grabbed her and shook her she talked about all the things she struggled with she talked about the episodes where we couldn't have knives in the house she talked about the things where she had to be hospitalised because of the anxiety in Auckland Hospital. And it was raw and real. When we were going through the process, it was a lot of it was chaos. It was the worst thing personally I've ever experienced watching my daughter every day thinking is she going to make it okay today and I struggled to find out why it hurt me so much and I didn't realise till later on that it hurt me so much as a father because I couldn't fix my daughter and we prayed endlessly for her God, just take away this anxiety. I don't know if you've ever done this, where you stand outside a problem and you go, God, take away this problem. And there's silence. For years, there's silence. God, take away this anxiety. And you're reading about the miracles. And you're thinking, where is this? In the heart of my daughter going through, our daughter going through anxiety, is this deep fear in me that I've caused this. That I don't want to look at because if I look at it, I will find the time that I yelled at my daughter when she was little. That maybe that was the time that she became acute, acutely anxious. That if she made it to the, in her 20s and she got counselling, they, she will come back and say, Dad, it's your fault. And I didn't want to go to this part in me that perhaps I had caused this problem. And I talk to parents 
a lot about this when I was willing to face it. And 100% of parents of children with anxiety felt the same. This feeling, I've caused this. Now there's all polite things out there, but maybe I have, but I can't ever go there. My daughter's got anxiety. So what are we going to do about it? And I remember I would pray and say, okay, today I'm going to, because it frightened me so much, her, with anxiety, and I couldn't fix it, is I reacted very strongly when it was evident in her. I was the least probably empathetic person in the heart of the moment. I just wanted it to go away. And if it couldn't go away, I wanted my daughter to go away. There was one time I even wished, perhaps it's better if she does go away for good. Those thoughts crossed my mind. They skated across in the heart of a serious episode that changed the fabric of our lives, that sometimes we lost friends, and we couldn't afford to lose friends. <laughs> Is that sometimes it was where people didn't understand what was going on, that they made some judgment calls, and we just thought, no. And then I'd find at BBI that I'd lecture about, don't be a helicopter parent, and I'd go home and be a helicopter parent, because perhaps I caused this problem, so I've got to be... I've got to earn my way back into the good books by giving in to my daughter and all these sorts of things. Very complicated relationship. Complicated. Where my daughter would threaten to phone SIFS, which was called um, SIFS back in the day. She was going to call SIFS because I grabbed her and I shook her. Now, I'm just being totally honest. Probably you're, you're better if the things that you're facing, and it's maybe not... Anxiety. Maybe there's other things that you wrestle with when no one else is around. And so we got through to this place where she's... She gets up the front, she says this thing. Listen here. And she talks about it. And I noticed something. We had teachers and we had parents... They were all leaning in and nodding their heads, taking notes. <clears throat> nodding heads. The nodding heads was, yeah, sometimes I get scared that the neighbour heard the shouting. You've ever had that with your kids that you think, have the neighbours heard the shouting? I wish we had closed the windows because <laughs> they're going to think we're not Christians after all. All our witnessing's down the Googler. <laughs> we're exceptionally good parents believe it or not we're exceptionally good parents we're just too hard on ourselves and we didn't damage our daughter we could afford to get things wrong I would go into the prayer closet beforehand and say Lord give me patience today Give me that heart that really cares. I'm not going to react today, Lord. I'm not going to react. Five minutes later, I'm screaming at my daughter <laughs> and then spending the rest of the day thinking, oh no, another scar. It's going to be about $3,000 worth of counselling just for today. <clears throat> and my daughter spoke these words that just <coughs> were reamer words that went in and I could see it going in and touching people and ministering to people where people didn't feel alone because it was the truth that was being spoken and there was hope in it that my daughter had learnt to deal with things and she's now a, um, a teacher in a school but when I got up afterwards I said to um, everyone I said do you know this is the first day that I won't be praying God take away my daughter's anxiety this is the first day in 21 years the only thing I'm going to pray is Lord take away her boyfriend <laughs> <laughs> but 
I was only joking because he's a really neat guy. But I no longer pray that. I no longer pray that because she has yet to come to know fully the Lord. But that has not. It has been a difficult thing, but it's not been bad. It's not been bad. Even I wouldn't go back and change it. Do you know what I mean? There's things I regret. That's not one of them. That whole journey, that the one that it just was a struggle for all of us, I wouldn't take it back. And so, our daughter is a teacher with in Redout North Road School. And it was by the time when she was 16, is for me personally, I had learnt not to fret, but to accept. And I wrote this book about acceptance of things. It's when you finally accept, accept something, that it loses its power. Where you can accept the depression. It's amazing how there's a Steve Camp song way back in the day that says, although the trials will never end, I've learned to take them as my friend. That I've got this thing called depression that's like a friend, which sounds bizarre, but it has no longer any shame. It has not got any violence attached to it. It's got no horror attached to it. And that acceptance. And I was driving, and my daughter, nothing for her really worked apart from the pockets of times that we truly were empathetic that we truly understood and did not try to fix the problem and I remember driving her at night because she couldn't she was in a, quite a state and she would sit in the back and drive out into Whitford and, and all those areas and then come back and often she didn't say anything she just sat at the back but one time she said dad and I remember exactly where it was. It was just coming into this turn, this turn in Whitford. She was in the back. She said, Dad. And I said, yes, Frankie. And there was silence, Dad. And I knew what she was going to say. And she said, Dad, I don't think I can carry on. But that wasn't bad. What she was saying is, it's not worth it. I don't want it to carry on. The worst thing is if she didn't say it. She said it. And I got it right. I got it right. Instead of panicking, I had accepted it. Acceptance doesn't just come to the person who is facing it, but the community or people that love a person is accepting what it is. It is the intimacy of actually embracing that thing that you're pushing away, that you're fighting or running from, is actually embracing it. And it's not an easy thing. It's like you can't, you know, when David in the Bible says, I cried out to the Lord. I don't know if you've ever tried to cry out to the Lord, but you can't, you're not there to cry out to the Lord. It sounds fake. Ah! And you hope you can fake God into thinking, oh, he's crying out. I'll come now. I sort of, I sort of like, yeah. Accepting. And I got it right. And I did the Brené Brown. I said, that must be hard, Frankie. That must be really hard. Thank you, Daddy. 16 years to get to that place where she said, I got it right. And the worst moment, I got it right. That must be really hard. Thanks, Daddy. Because either I didn't really want to accept it or I wanted, I didn't fully believe it. You would imagine a person who has depression would have a great sense of empathy. But it's a strange mixture. Of sometimes I didn't believe that she had it. That she wanted to wag school one time. I, I don't know how to navigate it. I 
was went around to a student's house because my role was Senko. So I work with kids that um, have struggled. Things that no one sees. These people go through journeys. That they should be put on a pedestal and said, look how brave they are. That's what they want to know. They want to know that there's people that believe in them and support them. Can we show that, um, that video? Have a, have a look at this. <coughs> Brené Brown, Priscilla. So what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's, a, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space where someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, I'm down. I know what it's like down here, and you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh-huh. Uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, is an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put this silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. At least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now, I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. The ability to connect with the world in our world is that sense of empathy and it's a learned thing and it's absolutely vital. If I can just walk across the sky bridge and talk about depression is when I was at BBI is I started to realise the tide was going out and I was going into um, an episode of depression, depression where I couldn't function normally. Um, and I just wanted to withdraw myself away. But there was an incredible need for empathy. Um, and my wife had to learn empathy for me. She had to learn what it was that I was facing, and she studied it. And I had times where I'd sit on this couch, and that's all I could do. And I was incredibly ashamed that I was going through depression. Incredibly ashamed, because it... It worked against the fact of everything I had built myself to be in a place of education where I had mana and I had esteem and all of a sudden it was all gone and it was like I'd failed and fallen into that hole and people were looking down and because I had a little bit of a name, all this community were like, well, there he's gone. Um, and But Rudy, it was really bad. There times where I had to say, Rudy, can you come home from school? Please, please, can you come home from school? And Rudy would come in and she would sit on the couch and she would say the thing I need to hear. It's going to be okay. You're going to be okay. I cannot tell you that I don't... I don't... Um, I was 
not suicidal at all with it, but I don't know where I would have been without the closest person to me being able to climb into that hole with me, even though they didn't feel it. And even if my wife had never experienced anything like that, is to be able to say the things that I need to hear that you're going to be fine and I'm with you. It's whatever you need. It was just, just, I cannot tell you how much of a breath that gave me in terms of things. So with this depression is I had prayed most of my life, Lord, take this away, take this away. Until the place I came to where I could accept it. And I want to just tell you the scripture and just go through some things so you know where I'm going with it. In James 1 it says, Dear brothers and sisters, is your life full of difficulties and temptations? Then be happy, for when the way is rough, your patience has a chance to grow. So let it grow and don't try and squirm out of your problems. For when your patience is in full bloom, you'll be ready for anything. Strong in character, full and complete. The one thing about it is this. Is there's this book called The Road Less Traveled. And the first sentence is just three words. And those three words are all that's needed. And you know what it says? Life is difficult. Life is difficult. When I got saved, I cannot tell you the joy. The joy was that Jesus loved me and the Father had access to my life and my, I had access to his life. But also I had another realisation that wasn't a truth, was I had no more problems. It was so overwhelming that I was at the top of the mountain, there was going to be no more problems. Well, life isn't like that. But the wonderful thing is that while life is difficult, doesn't mean to say that your life cannot be rich. It does not mean to say that your problems are going to make you sink. In fact, God says all things work for good. And I can testify to that. Even with my friendship of depression and my daughter's anxiety and the fact that I, day by day I'm going to face the fact that my wife is better looking than me and she looks younger and younger all the years as I get older. These horrible things that I'm dealing with is everything is, can be victorious if we can do one thing. If we can accept that when we give our hearts to Jesus Christ, we've got to be prepared that he will have no mercy in taking us to the very places that we don't want to go in order that he can take out of us everything that's not of God. When I gave my heart to Jesus Christ, it was the hardest decision I've ever made. It, in it, I fully gave up my right to my life. I've always thought this, that a person who fully surrenders is worth a thousand who don't, but acknowledge him as saviour. God loves a person that's willing to put their whole life, broken or unbroken, into the hands of God and say, God, you turn this into your glory. And if you could hear what God would say, are you serious? Because I am a God that will do what needs to be done, not what you want to do. My depression was not ever given by God, but it was allowed by God. And in the midst of it, I've been able to hold on to scriptures that speak of his goodness. To you, O Lord, I trust. My hope is put in you. And the word is tangible. I spoke that scriptures because I memorized these scriptures. When I first got saved, Ruth and Paul, do you remember, I used to write it on pieces of cardboard and I used to put them around my neck. And it was incredibly ugly because I would sweat and the ink would drip onto my chest. I was a disgusting little pig. So much so that my wife used to call me germ. Because you're disgusting. When we're just friends and God says, well, I've got a treat for you. <laughs> yeah. Don't you diss my man. <laughs> and um, put it into the hands of God that... A lot of things 
God does not do straight away, but he does do things. Like in that song, The Waymaker, you are working even when I can't see you. And I don't think there's anything that God loves hearing more that when you're in the midst of whatever you're going through, anxiety, depression, or whatever, is you're able to lift your hand and say, God, though you slay me, I trust in you. And sometimes that season is a while. About Joseph, they said they put his head neck in an iron collar and heard his feet with fetters. I don't know what fetters are, but I imagine them like whips or something. Until God's time finally came, how God tested his patience. In that scripture, it talks about, don't try and squirm out of your problems, for when your patience is in full bloom, I don't know about you, but when you're put into the crucible of a problem, you just feel like getting out. God is doing a work of bringing out of you the things that he does not want to inhibit your life. My depression in the midst of it, when I got back to school, something remarkable happened is that I lost the shame of it. The incredible shame lifted off me. And I've got my master's in education. My master's in education is nothing compared to how God has used my depression. In dealing with parents and students who are going through problems, is I'm able to say I know exactly how you feel because I have got a friendship with depression. They don't need to have depression to know that I've got something significant and they connect and immediately I've got a connection bridge with parents that they know that I won't judge them. I won't judge the chaos. I have been able to do far more with my depression. It's been my badge of honor. In fact, if you know me, there's quite a few badges that I wear. Narcissism, I'm an alcoholic, recovering alcoholic. I'm a drug abuser. I've got ADHD. I've got all these things and every single one of them has become a badge of honor. The very thing that the world might say, you've got a problem, God has turned for good. He's turned for good. I work with kids who've got ADHD. I work with kids, and I say, I know exactly what it is. And it's not me up here, it's me here talking. No longer the student and the teacher, but two people connecting, connecting intimately where I can speak whatever I want. Because in that place of connection, there's this love. I've just got to learn to not say to kids, I love you. <laughs> I said, I sit outside this coffee place, and I see Donna walking past, and there was this mother with a child, and I said, boy, your daughter's beautiful. I should have said something else, because in her ear, it must have sounded like, boy, your daughter's beautiful. <laughs> But she quickly wrapped her child up and took off. <laughs> and there's a pedophile! And um, the other thing with this is in the heart of the depression, the, the crucible of it, is I, when I came back to school I couldn't function in the office and they put me in a class. Which was <laughs> like, yeah, give, yeah, give your problems to the kids in the class. And... Um, and I had to go back to a psychiatrist. Now, this psychiatrist, um, I've seen a, a variety of specialists over the years. This psychiatrist was dressed in shabby clothes. And I knew straight away that he was going to be lousy at his job because he was in a public health system. So he must have been the bottom of the thing. He was a genius. He was a genius. I just so love him because... He was remarkable, but not only that, there was one day that I was walking into the car to go to see him, and I had a revelation from God, or an epiphany, whatever you call it, that he was going to speak something that was going to change my life that day. And here's the miracle. My daughter and my sister said, when she found out I got depression, pray it out of you. You know, it's demonic. People can say a whole lot of things that don't really make sense. And I went along and I sat in the office with him and I was talking away. And he said, Mark, shut it. Shut it. I've got something to say to you. And I turned and he said the words that would change my life. He said, Mark, your worth is not your performance. Right in the core of me, while I was in the crucible, 
one thing, an impurity in me, is all my life I had to prove myself. I had to prove my worth. And if I wasn't successful, then I wasn't worth anything. It was the very nature, really, that I went into depression. There was other factors, but the heart of it was if I didn't feel successful in my job. You know what they gave me as a job? It's like... <laughs> ADHD and organisation don't go together. My job was to do timetables and everything. And I had no idea how to do timetables. And I'd sit in the office and feel like an absolute failure because my, my gifts are more with people. Not with all people. Not like the mother with her daughter. Drop the ball on that one. Um, but, yeah. And... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the, your worth is not your performance. And thanks. And um, that word, I don't know if you've ever seen National Treasure. And he puts the key in and unlocks all these things. I love that film. And this key went into my heart. I don't know if you've ever had this. And it unlocked. And this thing, it was like a monkey on my back that had been there for as long as I can remember, that I had to succeed. And success for me was the pinnacle of things, but in between was a lot of failure. And I lived in this incredible, stressful life that while I was good looking on the outside, it was this ball of stress going on inside. That so much so that I once had this boil on my head sort of thing from the stress. And I'd sit in, in the car, fearful of going into work because I knew that they'll find out that I was a fake, that I couldn't do things, that I was a failure. And when I had a moment of success, I had about 30 seconds to enjoy it before it was gone and I had to go to the next success. That I was driven by this need for success, that people would look at my life at times and go, he's so successful. But it wasn't. It was chaotic. And finally, this monkey got removed. That I no longer had to prove myself. And I've been a Christian for a long time. I no longer had to prove myself. It's deeply buried impurity. And maybe you're going through something at the moment and the Lord's wanting to do a work and you're busy trying to say, God, fix this. Instead of saying, God, I trust you with this. And I'm willing to do what you want because I know all things work for good. I went back to work and... I could be criticised. In fact, I could never really be criticised up to that point. And I had another deputy take me out and he was criticising me. And it was such a joyful moment. He was telling me off for what I'd done wrong and I did not panic. I didn't feel a failure. And I, was, I must have looked insane because I was smiling at him. Going, this feels wonderful. Mm, bring it on. So there's this nature that God will do what he needs to do in your life in order to refine you and purify you and allow his glory to be seen through your life and one of the greatest things I'm going to finish on this is the last image is this Japanese pot Japanese pot I don't know what it's called what's it called? Pardon? the gold it's Kitsugi. Yeah. It's where they get a broken pot and they fuse it with gold. Brokenness is in Doug's wall in his bathroom. If he ever uses toilet, use it because it's got we're all munted. Sometimes I just go to use the toilet so I can read it. Um, it's actually become famous, hasn't it? And, and that brokenness is perfection. Our lives are to be like that, where people can see the cracks, but God has fused it with the gold of glory. The glory. And that's the purpose of your life, is not that you are perfect. You don't need to pretend you're what you're not. Allow God to do all the work he started in you, and he's faithful to complete it. But what he wants is the, the trust. And I can be totally honest with you. When you're going through something, your faith seems so small. It seems like you've got this huge sea of doubt. And you just stand on the promise of God. And you speak and say, God, even though everything seems like it's not going to work, you are going to work. Because God doesn't reward you because you're a Christian. He rewards faith in the midst 
of the darkest season is holding on to his promise, embracing what it is you're struggling with and accepting it and saying, Lord, in your time, do this work. And sometimes God will take you to strange places. I'm going to finish on this. Jesus healed one person by spitting on the ground and getting mud. Have you ever wondered about that one? And rubbing on the eyes? Like, what's that about? Sometimes God uses the very natural things in life. Do you know what? In my, with my depression and things, nothing has ever worked except for two things. Nothing, I would say. My wife would say the antidepressants work. I got a question mark over that one. For me, just for me, is holding on to the word of God, because it's living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's living and active. It changes you. But holding on to it. The other thing is this weird thing. For me, I'm not telling about you. But I had a person that says, why don't you try cold water swimming? I said, oh, that's a good one. But then this other person said it, and I thought, yeah. So for the last three weeks, I've been running, and then I jump in the water. So at the moment, I'm covered in salt water, and I stay in the water for 10 minutes. I cannot begin to tell you that I have these waves of the low. I have these waves of discouragement. Because I'm going also through this other thing that I can't talk about that's a challenge, or we are. And these thoughts come of discouragement, huge waves that always billowed over me and would take me into the pits of hell. Is that I had the strength of mind. There's something medical about it, that I had this ability to push these thoughts aside. They sit on the side, but they don't consume me, and I walk through these things. Is that true? Really? <laughs> because you sometimes wonder if she'll say the truth. It's, it's changed. But sometimes God uses very natural things as well. Don't try and... He once even used Arnold Schwarzenegger in my life. Where he said, you know, said something and that spoke into my heart. He uses all the fabrics of things in life to change us. So for wherever you are in life, whether you're good looking or... Munted. <laughs> Whatever you are, you know the journey you're on, and we're all on a different journey. But we all, hopefully, have got the hope of Jesus Christ, who's begun the good work in you and is faithful to complete it. And maybe something in this message has spoken, hopefully, something of hope. But I know this, it's different for different people. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, or maybe you've dropped the Lord for whatever reason, you've lost that first love. You've lost that first love through the seasons of life. I always thought, if you do that, it's a long way back. But it's no further back than when your child goes off and does something wrong and then comes back and says, sorry, they're straight away. And that's why the prodigal son story is told. It takes just one instance. It's not a journey. That if you have walked away from the Lord, on the outward you seem like it's fine, but if you were truthful, you know that it's not. Then today is the day you do something courageous and you come back to the Lord. Because outside the Lord there is no hope, to be honest. So... I'm going to pass it over to Glenn, and I'll probably talk for too long. I have. I'm so sorry. It's the ADHD, bro. <laughs> <laughs>